bulletin is from the Press Radio Bureau. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Live from the East Bay, it's the Frame Lab Podcast, the podcast about politics, language, and your brain, with Dr. George Lakoff and Gil Duran. In this episode, we discuss the conservative moral hierarchy and how Republicans really think, and Dr. Lakoff answers your questions. Here we go. Hello, and welcome to the Frame Lab Podcast, or what we're going to call it, Don't Think of a Podcast. I'm Gil Duran here with Professor George Lakoff. George, why a podcast? Well, uh... Starting from the uh, day after the 2016 election, uh, Gil and I set up a citizens' communication network, uh, getting lots and lots of details out to lots of people uh, over a period of time for free. And uh, we want to do this in a more more organized way, and podcasts are an excellent way to put or content in an organized fashion that is easily listened to. You don't have to do reading or looking. It's very easy to hear it. And um, I think uh, this will allow us also to adjust what uh, the general principles we've been talking about, uh, uh, adjust those general principles to the issues of the day. And George, I think most of your readers and, and listeners know who you are. But for those who don't, why don't you say a little bit about your background uh, how you got started and the work you've been doing for the past, I don't know, 50, 60, 76 years? <laughs> well, um, uh, I um, started working in uh, linguistics, studying the mind and language, uh, a long time ago, back in uh, 1963. And uh, I uh, worked on this for a long time. I taught in uh, major universities for 50 years, uh, six years at uh, between Harvard and the University of Michigan and 44 years at the University of California at Berkeley and uh, retired in 2016. Since then, I've been very busy, uh, especially since the election. Uh, Trump is keeping us and many other people extremely busy because we have to do something about this and we can. So our job is to get out there and uh, tell those folks who uh, want to uh, change the country in a positive way, Uh, you know, uh, what we know about uh, what Trump and the Republicans are doing, why they're doing it, and to help the Democratic Party understand uh, what uh, its own views really are uh, and uh, to express them better and allow ordinary citizens out there to um, talk to each other and to uh, whoever will listen to them, and to do it in a way that is really enlightening and that fits the way we understand it. My background is in cognitive science and linguistics. Uh, I study the brain, the mind, and language, and uh, I apply that to politics. Uh, That is not what is usually done. What is usually done is opinion. And this isn't just opinion. This is applying what uh, I and others have learned Uh, over the last four decades uh, in the cognitive and brain sciences to politics. And uh, that's a very, very different uh, approach. It is not the approach that you find on uh, most TV shows uh, or uh, radio shows uh, where you get mostly opinion. Uh, This is more than that. So this is a scientific approach to politics, language, and the moral frameworks underlying all of it. Is Is that accurate or is there something you would add or change about that? Well, that is accurate. We're trying to, as well as we can, 
apply what has been learned from the cognitive and brain sciences uh, to, um, uh, to politics and to what it means to understand politics and to what we call framing. That's why this is called FrameLab. Uh, frames are uh, mental structures that you use every day to understand just about anything. Uh, to understand the radio broadcast, for example, as you're doing now, uh, and to, uh, or to understand what it means to uh, walk into a restaurant or drive a car or do anything at all that you normally do. There's a structure, a mental structure behind it. Uh, those structures have been worked out. They're called frames. And um, what we do is use knowledge about those structures to uh, inform how these things work in politics. Great. There are a lot of concepts to grasp uh, in order to kind of have a better understanding about this. And I think it's it, a lot of those concepts might not be graspable in one conversation. But today we decided to focus on a very important concept that is it's the heart of understanding framing and the use of framing in politics. And that is the conservative moral hierarchy or the way that Republicans think. Uh, this is something that you have written about a lot. And why is it important for people to understand it? And what is it? Well, uh, this goes back in my work to um, 1994 when the Republicans took over Congress. And uh, they put out a little book called The, Com the uh, Contract with America. And in that, uh, they promised that if elected, the Republicans would do uh, 10 things. The first thing they would do is guarantee that there be no abortions. The second was um, guarantee that there would be a flat tax. And I, uh, as a progressive, said, this is very strange. What, if, what does the flat tax have to do with abortion? And then they went on. They, wanted to, they said they would guarantee that everybody can own guns. So, well, what do owning guns have to do with the flat tax and abortion? And then they went on, they said, and uh, we will guarantee that there will be no environmental regulations. And uh, you say, well, wait a minute, what do environmental regulations have to do with the first three? And they went on like this for 10 promises. And uh, I looked at that and I said, well, this is, these are very strange people. What do these ideas have to do with each other? Uh, I have exactly the opposite ideas. And uh, then I said, well, what do my ideas have to do with each other? And I got embarrassed. I couldn't answer that question right away. But what I did was I recognized that this is a problem in my, my field, my discipline in cognitive science. What do such issues have to do with each other? Why do the issues uh, cohere? What sense do they make? Uh, so I started looking at this, and I read a lot. I did research. I interviewed people. Uh, you know, uh, I did all sorts of things. I listened to uh, lots of uh, uh, conservative and liberal broadcasts uh, at the language being used uh, for about six months. Uh, and at one point, I asked myself why conservatives were concerned with family values and what those values were. And I remembered that one of my students had written a paper showing that uh, Americans all have a conceptual metaphor, a metaphorical understanding of the nation as a family. We have founding fathers. Now, literally, that makes no sense. They're not literally fathers of us. Uh, so what, what do you mean by founding fathers? But everybody understands it. We have homeland security. 
we uh, send our sons and daughters to war. Well, they're not literally our individual sons and daughters, but what does it mean to say that? Uh, we don't want missiles in our backyard, and so on. Uh, it looks like we all have this understanding of the nation as a family, but we have two different understandings of the nation, conservative and progressive. Uh, does that mean that they're based on different understandings of the family? So I looked at that in detail, and in fact, that is exactly what happens. It turns out that the nation as family metaphor applies to two very different views of what a family is like to give you two very different views of what the nation is like. And you can understand conservatism and progressive thought uh, much better and easier if you understand how this, this links to family life. And once you do that, you can actually see the details and why they work the way they do. If you want to understand, uh, you know, uh, that document, uh, the document of, uh, you know, that lists all the things that uh, conservatives believe, uh, then uh, this will explain it. If you want to understand the things that progressives believe, this will understand it. It will explain what it is. You'll be able to get it. And you'll be able to see uh, exactly why conservatives say what they say, think what they think, do what they do, and have tax bills of the sort that they have. Why, why do they? They do that because um, conservatism uh, and progressivism are based on different uh, moral frameworks that come out of the way fam families are structured. The basic idea is this. All politics is really about morality, about what's right and wrong. If a political leader says to you, here is the policy that I propose, uh, I think that this is what everyone should do. Uh, the assumption is that that's right, not wrong. He doesn't come out and say, this is evil, but do it. He doesn't say, it doesn't matter, but do it. The assumption behind every political statement about what should be done is the assumption that it's right. But you have two sides saying the opposite things, which means they have two opposite views of right and wrong. And that is why we study the moral nature of politics. And this comes out of the moral nature of families. There are different kinds of families. Uh, a progressive family works like this. If there are two parents, they have equal responsibility for their children. Their job is to empathize with their children, to know what their children need, uh, to have two-way uh, conversations with them, to find out uh, what they need and, and to uh, communicate directly so that uh, the children will know why the parents are telling them what to do and uh, for their benefit and uh, the um, parents will know uh, what the difficulties the children are facing. Uh, this is part of that. In addition, the, uh, a progressive parent first has to take care of him or herself uh, in order to take care of anyone else but they also are there to make sure that their children are fulfilled in life, that they're healthy, that they're well-educated, that they have enough life experiences to see what kind of lives they want to live and how they can be best, best, best live fulfilling lives. That's why there are all of those other music lessons and um, uh, soccer games and uh, dance lessons and so on. That's why that happens in um, progressive families. And uh, it is a normal thing to do. And moreover, they want their children to grow up with the same views. They want them to be able to empathize with other people, to make sure that other people are fulfilled in their lives. 
That's what it means to have a progressive family. But a conservative family, a strict, what I call a strict father family, though there are strict mothers as well, uh, the strict father is there because it's the prototypical case, but it has to do with strictness. And in a strict father family, the father is the authority in the family. And the assumption is that the father knows right from wrong. And his job is to make sure that everybody does what he th says is right, because it is assumed in the family that what he says is right is right. So uh, his job, for example, with his children, is to make sure that the children don't just do what feels good, but do what he says is right. That's the way they become moral beings. And, uh, you know, so you've heard the term feel-good liberalism. Conservatives assume that uh, liberals just haven't had strict enough parents. That's why they go wrong, because they do what feels good, as opposed to doing uh, what uh, a conservative father would say is right. Now, when a child disobeys the father, the father has a responsibility to punish that child uh, painfully enough, it could be physically or psychologically, but painfully enough so that the child will uh, not do what feels good, but do what the father says is right. And if that happens, the child will have to develop discipline to not do what feels good, but to do what the father says. And if the child has that difficult, uh, has that discipline, if the child has overcome the difficulty of not doing what feels good, but doing what the father says, then that discipline will allow them to go out in the world and become prosperous. So there's a logic here. What if someone is not prosperous? That means they're not disciplined and therefore deserve their poverty. Therefore, it follows that uh, you know poor people uh, deserve their poverty. And that is one part of what follows uh, socially and politically uh, from strict father morality. But there's much more. Because strict father morality is not just uh, about an individual father and not just about an, uh, any individual ideas. The assumption is that this is part of nature, that uh, it's, it's a kind of um, uh, social Darwinism of a, of a kind that is built into uh, a strict father family. It assumes that this is the natural way of the world. This is the way parents are supposed to be. Uh, and they have been when they, they work naturally. And if this is true, there's a consequence. The consequence is that the people who have won out in the world deserve to win out, and the people who have lost deserve to lose. Uh, that is, everything is a matter of individual responsibility. What happens to you depends upon your individual responsibility and your discipline. The result of that is a moral hierarchy. Who is better than who? Why? Because if you look at uh, what groups have won out over what other groups, it's you can see that that is the way of the world, that that is because the world is structured uh, uh, that way. It is what is right in the world. So you get a moral hierarchy out of this. And that moral hierarchy says, uh, God above man, religion has won out around the world. Uh, you know, over uh, lack of religion. Uh, and uh, it says, in addition to that, that um, uh, man is above nature, that nature is there for human beings to just use the way they want. Drill, baby, drill. You know, use nature any way you want to use it. 
you know, why work? Because we're conquering nature. Uh, then you have the, the um, disciplined over the undisciplined in many ways. For example, the rich over the poor. Why the rich over the poor? Uh, the rich are more moral because they deserve it. They're rich because they are more disciplined, and if they're more disciplined, that's what they deserve to have via the nature of the world. Uh, then you have not just the rich over the poor, but as a result, employers over employees, no unions. Employers can you know, treat employees or should be able to treat them uh, as, they, as they wish. Uh, and it goes on like that. Uh, you have uh, adults over children in 21 states in America. Uh, teachers and coaches can beat children with sticks if the children don't just obey, if they talk back to them or sass them or uh, refuse to do what they say, they can be beaten. That is the law in 21 states in the United States. Uh, and you can imagine which states they are. Uh, then uh, you have the idea of Western culture over non-Western culture. The Western nations have won out over uh, other nations in other parts of the world. Uh, then you have America over other countries, the greatest country, etc., the strongest country, the best country. And then it goes on beyond that, uh, not for necessarily uh, all conservatives in the strict father hierarchy, but for many, you have a natural uh, extension uh, to uh, men over women, whites over non-whites, Christians over non-Christians, straights over gays. Uh, these, this is a form of what progressives would call bigotry. Uh, and not all conservatives are bigots by any means. Some start, you know, stop above that hierarchy. But conservatives as a whole will believe of God over man, man over nature, uh, the rich over the poor, uh, and so on, that with that first part of the hierarchy. And you can see this in Republican legislation. You can see this in uh, what is being proposed by conservatives. Yeah, I've, I've noticed um, online when people respond to your writing, uh, some conservatives take exception to this description, this sort of encoded bigotry in their belief system. Uh, at the same time, I find it's virtually impossible to disprove this hierarchy by looking at Republican legislation. It seems to only prove that whatever they can do to uh, oppose people of color, uh, oppose the rights of uh, lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual people, um, disempower employees, uh, all of it is reflected very clearly in, their, in the legislation that's forwarded by Republicans, even if every individual conservative doesn't necessarily feel strongly you know, against these in interests, they still vote for people who act according to this hierarchy. That's right. And there's another very important thing about this for conservatives. The highest principle in conservative thought is preserving and extending conservatism itself, preserving and extending this hierarchy. So uh, when Obama was president, occasionally Obama would take some idea proposed by a conservative uh, like uh, Romney's idea, of what, which ultimately became the Affordable Care Act, 
but was applied first in Massachusetts. And he will, you know, propose something that was proposed by, Repo by uh, Republicans and conservatives. And the conservatives will, will argue and vote against it. Why? Because they don't want Obama getting credit for it. Because if, if Obama got credit for it, it would be bad for conservatism itself. Because Obama was a liberal. You don't want liberals to win. So even if it's proposed by conservatives, the conservatives will go against it for the sake of proposing conservatism itself. And, even, and, and that has to do with things like lying. You know, conservatives will lie even when, you know, uh, you know they, they may like to tell what they see as the truth, but if necessary, they'll lie to preserve the idea of conservatism. And, and we'll talk about why that is uh, and why that's uh, very important. Yeah. But before we go into the details, there is something that we need to say about uh, what it means to have this view of morality and why this kind of moral basis, and what's moral about it? What's moral about it is another question that often pops up. People think this sounds like an immoral hierarchy. Right, if you're a, pro pro a progressive, this sounds like, like it's immoral. But uh, as we pointed out, all political policies are presented as being right, not wrong. And this is about, about what people consider right and wrong. And there are certain things that conservatives will consider just wrong and other things they'll consider right. And in many cases, they'll be the very opposite of what progressives see as right and wrong. And that's important. There are two different systems that define what right and wrong are. And that those are called moral systems. Uh, so we have in this country two very opposing systems, moral systems, that certainly apply in politics but also apply in everyday life apply in family life, apply in business life, apply it in many, many areas. So there are, um, you know, uh, nurturant and, um, and strict versions of this throughout our culture. Uh, and that's, that's very important to understand. So at the heart of this is, is a metaphor. And a lot of people who are familiar with the political books may not understand the amount of your career you spent uh, focused on the role of metaphor and its importance in human cognition and understanding. Can you briefly explain why metaphor is the way to look at the situation? Sure. Uh, the, there's an old idea of metaphor that goes back to Aristotle and was, uh, and it's, it's still taught now and then. Uh, it is that metaphor is fanciful. It doesn't have to do with what, how you understand the world, uh, you know, that is the way uh, you actually do things in the world and so on. That it has to do with uh, stories or poetry or rhetoric or something like that. But it's, it's in words and it's fanciful. Uh, that does occur. It's not that it doesn't occur, but that's the minor part of, of this. Uh, metaphor is in your very thoughts. And it shows up in language and it shows up in your actions. So uh, let's take a very simple case. Suppose I say, um, uh, turn the radio up. That doesn't mean throw it up against the ceiling. Or turn it down. That doesn't mean throw it to the floor. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a metaphor that more is up and less is down. When you say stock prices went up, you know, it's not literally up. It's metaphorically up because more is up. It means you have, there's more, more wealth in, in the stocks. And this is important to understand. It's not just about 
up and down and more and less. It's about all sorts of things, hundreds and hundreds of concepts in everyday life. Is most or all of thought metaphorical? No. There's a literal up and down. Sure. Uh, the uh, motion, there you, you move from place to place. That's literally true. However, if you want to talk about purposes and achieving purposes, purposes are called goals because they are understood in terms of moving from where you are to another destination that you want to be at. So uh, you say, hey, there's nothing standing in my way, or I've got to get around this difficulty or get over it as if it's standing in your way. Uh, the idea is that you're moving from here to there. And uh, the motion is literal, but the, the um, idea of what a purpose is and what it means for something to stand in your way, something to block you, uh, has to do um, with uh, the metaphor that purposes are destinations, that action is motion. Uh, those are metaphors that we use every day in our lives, that we think in terms of. Uh, they're not just in language, they're in the way we actually think. So, and there's a, a pretty broad agreement on the role that metaphors play. I mean, corporations, pol political operatives, um, storytellers, metaphor is just a way we understand easily uh, reality and make sense of things. Right. You understand abstract ideas uh, in terms of the most uh, concrete experiences in your life. And that is uh, the way metaphorical thought works. And then you act on the basis of that thought. Uh, take an example. Uh, you have time understood as a resource, like time is money. And once you have time as money, you pay people according to their time. Uh, you say, oh, I don't want to waste time. Uh, we sh how much time should we spend on that? And so on. That is, you, uh, you budget your time. Think about the idea of budgeting time. You're understanding time as a money-like resource. Uh, time is just time, <laughs> you know? But the way we live is structured in, a, in our culture in terms of those metaphors. Okay. So we understand that there's a metaphor here, a family metaphor, and you've gone through the hierarchy. Now here's something that a lot of your readers and people who comment on Facebook and, and Twitter um, don't understand, or there's a question they always ask is, why do poor conservatives vote against their own interests? Uh, are they stupid or uninformed, as some people would like to believe? Or is there another answer? I mean, you might be able to understand why a person who's wealthy uh, would see wealthy people as being better than poor people, but why would poor people vote for politicians who always put the interests of the wealthy ahead of their own? Well, uh, there's a deep answer to this, and it starts with understanding a little bit about uh, how the brain works. Uh, all ideas are actually physical. They're, you know, ideas don't float through the air. They're in your neural system, in your brain. They're carried out by uh, your neural circuitry in your brain. And um, that's important because the more that you use an idea or you have your language that activates this idea, the stronger that idea gets, the stronger the circuitry gets. Now, uh, this leads to the notion of a worldview. There are certain ideas that you need to get around in the world every day. You know, you, you need to understand what a car is. You need to understand, uh, you know, uh, what it is to cook dinner. You need to understand uh, what it is to shop. 
Uh, you need to understand what it is to work at whatever job you have. That is, you need uh, an understanding that you use every day of your life. And since you use it every day, the neural circuitry for that is strengthened every day until it is virtually built in. You know, you have a worldview, an understanding of the world that you use every day. And that includes your political and moral understanding. That is, your moral understanding, your, you know, whether you're thinking in terms of nurturance or strictness, you're going to be thinking that way about all sorts of things every day, and it becomes part of your political worldview. Now, uh, what's important about that is that you can only understand what your brain allows you to understand. If some fact comes in that doesn't fit what your brain allows you to understand, what'll happen? Well, a number of things. One, you could not notice it. You could ignore it. You could try to change the fact to fit what, what you understand, to fit your worldview. Uh, you might be puzzled by the fact and just be, be bewildered by it, as I was bewildered by, under, by listening to what conservatives uh, and the way they thought at first. Um, you might uh, not just be puzzled by it. You could be threatened by an idea. You might argue against it or ridicule it, think it's absurd. Right? These things happen in politics all the time, all of them do, uh, on both sides, uh, whether you're progressive or, or conservative. That is, you have a worldview uh, that is a political worldview. Now, let's suppose uh, that you have this moral worldview. Uh, what, is that, what does it mean to you? Well, just about everybody wants to think that they do what's right or to at least try to do what's right. That is part of their very identity to, uh, to understand what's right and wrong. Most people don't around, uh, go around thinking they're going to do evil every day. They think they're going to do what's right, or at least try to do what's right, which means their moral worldview has to be part of their identity, of who they most deeply are. They're not going to vote against th themselves, against their worldview. Mm -hmm. And that is why... You have poor people who have a strict father view, let's say at home in the family, or about politics, will vote um, you know, for that identity, even if it goes against their own poverty, even if they're poor, even if cons the conservative legislation makes them poor or, or goes against their interests, they will vote against their material interests because their identity is more important than their material interests. Some people call that tribalism these days. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on that in among political pundits and, and observers, but none of them have really honed in on what, what really ties it all together like the conservative moral hierarchy does. And perhaps there's no better illustration of how this kind of moral political identity works than the spectacle of, of poor conservatives voting for a a supposed billionaire from New York who would seem to represent the opposite to many people of a conservative moral worldview. Yet, in March of 2016, you wrote an essay on your blog called Understanding Trump, and you opened it with the following words. Donald Trump is winning Republican presidential primaries at such a great rate that he seems likely to become the next Republican presidential nominee and perhaps the next president. And I remembered reading that back then when you wrote it. And at the time, that was considered crazy talk by most political operatives and experts, so-called experts. I had 
been working in politics for 15 years and I knew that nobody wants to say out loud that Trump could win because you'll sound crazy when Hillary wins and you won't be invited to the inauguration or people will think you're, 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 your analyses are off and you, you're not really a trustworthy uh, analyst. Yet you had the idea, you had an idea, an inkling that he could win based on the ways in which he was selling himself to conservatives. Can you yes. say more about that? Yeah, we'll get into that in a while, but he is very, very smart. Uh, he may not uh, know a lot about uh, policy. He may not uh, have uh, be uh, have knowledge in certain ways, but he's been a salesman for 50 years. He knows how to sell and how to sell himself and his ideas and his view of the world, and he's very effective at it. And we'll get into the details of exactly how he does that mm -hmm. uh, in a little while. But it's uh, what I noticed was that he was doing it very well that he was selling himself and marketing himself extremely well uh, to his base, to people who had strict father morality, to Republicans. And um, the Democrats had no idea that Republicans have strict father morality. That idea, which is really basically a metaphorical idea, is not in uh, the official democratic understanding of the world. The reason for that is they don't understand how people really think. And this is a very big deal. Uh, there is a thing called Enlightenment Reason, uh, which came out of Descartes in 1650. And uh, it's a theory of reason that Descartes had, which has turned out to be a false theory, but it was very important in 1650. Uh, let me try to explain what that is and why it was that Obama, in his farewell address, said that Enlightenment reason is absolutely crucial in democracy, and why Hillary uh, Clinton, in her address at Wellesley at a graduation, uh, you know, said Wellesley is great because it teach, uh, teaches Enlightenment reason, and that's where I learned about Enlightenment reason. Enlightenment reason, back in 1650, was formulated as follows. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. He said, all thought is conscious. Now, we know from cognitive science that thought is 98% unconscious. So that's not true. Thought is carried out by your neural system, and you have no conscious access to what your neurons are doing. It's 98% unconscious. But the assumption is it's all conscious. Then uh, Descartes, who was a mathematician, said uh, uh, thinking consciously uh, is like doing a mathematical proof. It's like going logically step by step through logic. Okay? And that um, turns out, to, it turns out that in logic, uh, and I was a math major at MIT and did logic for many years, uh, uh, logic, uh, which is a very interesting form of mathematics, is not the way people normally think. They have special logics for frame logics and metaphorical logics. That is, there are inferences that follow from accepting a frame. There are inferences that follow from accepting a metaphor, but technically, Logic is, doesn't have frames and metaphors, and if you look at the math, at mathematical logic. So that in enlightenment reason, everything we're talking about here, all the frames and all the metaphors, are assumed not to exist. So that is real reason, and, and everybody uses the metaphors. Everybody who believes in enlightenment reason uses metaphors all the time. They use frames all the time. It's, it's not that they don't use it, it's that their theory of what they're doing is, a, is not an accurate theory. Uh, so that's another part of this. Descartes also said uh, 
that uh, uh, that uh, that ideas could not be physical, because if they were physical, then uh, the laws of nature would uh, constrain them, and you wouldn't be able to think just anything at all, and have freedom to to, to think uh, of any kind of thing. Well, it turns out that the neural system is governed by physics and chemistry and biology, and you can't just think of anything at all. You can only think of what your brain allows you to think. And if you have a certain worldview, you're tied into your worldview. Your worldview will filter out certain ideas and allow you know an infinite number of others. So um, that leads to, uh, in Descartes' view, uh, an assumption that if all of his views were right, then everybody would be rational. That is, we are all rational animals. He says that's what a human being is. And he defined what rationality was. And he says, well, therefore, all human beings will think only consciously, will reason only in terms of logic. And there's a consequence. If you just tell people the facts, they'll all reason to the right conclusion. And that's why the Democrats are always giving you facts and data and statistics and, and polling numbers and so on. Because the assumption is if they just tell you the facts, you'll get all the right conclusions. So you're saying that Democrats just basically lack understanding of how brains and thinking works. Exactly. Uh, they, uh, they lack an understanding of that. Whereas Republicans uh, have a better understanding for a very interesting reason. Uh, when Republicans, conservative Republicans, go to college, they're probably going to study some business. And in any business curriculum, there is a marketing course. That marketing professors, marketing professors know about how people really think. They think in terms of frames, metaphors, images, narratives, emotions, and so on. That's why advertising works the way it does, and that's why marketing is does. Republican leaders know how to market their ideas. So Trump's a business guy, comes from a business background, comes from a sales background, became a celebrity by selling himself as a billionaire, as a successful person, as a gold-plated um, character from the 80s and 90s. How did Trump, a former Democrat, sell himself as a conservative? Well, first of all, uh, the stuff about being a former Democrat is interesting because he was in New York where... All political leaders were Democrats. Uh, Trump uh, had gave money to political leaders to get favors. Those favors included, um, you know, uh, the ability to build hotels in places where normally one couldn't build hotels. He got regulations waived by political leaders. He bribed political leaders uh, to do all sorts of things that helped his business. And uh, to do that, he had to be officially a Democrat, giving money for the election of Democrats, namely for the political leaders of New York. But he wasn't really a Democrat in any deep uh, moral sense. Uh, he didn't have the moral views that are behind the Democratic Party. He just had the, you know, the idea of using Democ being a Democrat as a way to get favor. So it was self-interest. Absolutely, which is the very uh, against the very idea of um, what uh, progressive and liberal ideas are in the Democratic Party. So this is, uh, and we'll get into that in, in some detail, but uh, you, know, you know, when people say he used to be a Democrat, uh, that doesn't mean, any, mean that he had the ideas behind the Democratic Party. And now we see today Trump has perhaps his first big victory since the election. 
actually his first big media victory. There's other forms of victory he's had that people haven't really acknowledged or understood in terms of his dismantling of government in a in a sort of quiet way behind the scenes. But the Senate and the House have now passed this massive tax cut for the richest people in the country. Um, how does this illustrate the conservative moral hierarchy? And what does it really mean? Is this just about the economy and the middle class and jobs? Or is there a deeper level of concern that we should have here uh, in terms of what conservatives are trying to achieve by making the rich richer and everyone else poorer? Um, what you hear from the pundits uh, on TV and radio uh, right now about the tax bill, if they're Democrats, uh, they're coming out and saying about who, you know, uh, how the lower classes and the middle classes uh, are uh, being screwed by this bill, uh, how, uh, you know, uh, the, you get the facts and the statistics. 83% of the $1.5 trillion is going to the top 1% of, of, uh, of the wealthy people. Uh, and they say, you know, people may get a little bit of a tax cut at the beginning if they're poorer, but it'll go away after a while. But meanwhile, uh, all of this money of the $1.5 trillion, about $1.2 to $3 trillion of that is going to the top 1%. Now, uh, wealth is not merely wealth. It's power. And that's a very important thing. Wealth is power in many ways. Wealth, uh, for example, uh, the uh, Republican donors who got wealth uh, have uh, exused their wealth for governing, to, to get Republicans elected, uh, then to uh, give the campaign, the, the people they, can, they gave the money to, to do what they want, want them to do. And this is important. That is, wealth confers power of many, many, many kinds. So... Um, Yes, there's power over government and what government can do, and that's very important. But in addition to that, there's all kinds of power in society. Uh, for example, uh, it is power, the power of wealth, that determines who can live where, who gets the most desirable properties, who gets the most desirable land, the, you know, etc. Who goes to the best colleges? You know, who can afford to to, to get an education? Uh, who has the best uh, not health insurance uh, and uh, the best doctors and so on. Lots of things depend upon power, the power of wealth. Uh, and if you start looking at this um, in terms of, um, you know, take uh, who has the best, who can afford the best cars, uh, who can afford to buy the best stereo equipment, who can afford to buy, you know, to buy the best anything. Uh, that wealth is, is there, and uh, a lot can be bought in society with that wealth. Uh, you know, where do you go on vacation? Uh, what can you afford? Uh, you know, uh, what kind of a house can you live in? Uh, do you have uh, servants to help you or not? You know, if you're in that uh, very wealthy one-tenth of one percent in this country, you can afford all sorts of things that the bottom 99.9 percent .9 cannot afford. And that is power. People don't think of it as power. They just think of it as money. It's also freedom, right? I think Paul Ryan accidentally said that last year. He equated wealth to freedom, in which case 
what we're trying to do is make sure that the richest people have more freedom than everybody else and the everybody else gets a, a, a smaller degree of it if you view wealth as in terms of freedom. That's right. Think of the freedom to live where you want to live, the free, freedom to go to school where you want to go to school or send your kids to the kinds of schools you want to send them to, uh, the freedom to... Um, you know, have the best doctors uh, and the best health care plans. There are fr- each of the things we mentioned are have to do with freedom. If you're sick uh, and you can't afford, uh, you know, appropriate health care and appropriate doctors, you're not free. Uh, if you're not educated, you're not free, you know. And uh, if you uh, want to go somewhere and you can't afford a car, you're not free, you know. All of these things have to do with freedom. And that's important. And uh, the um, you know Republicans understand that uh, wealth confers a, a vast range of freedoms. And this is weird because democracy is supposed to provide freedom for everybody, and and that's very important principle. If you take a look at that nurturant parent family and say, how does that show up in progressive thought? The answer can be given in two sentences. One comes from Abraham Lincoln. That is, democracy uh, uh, has a government that is of, by, and for the people. Not of the wealthy, uh, by the wealthy, for the wealthy, as was just described in this tax bill that just passed, uh, where that is what that bill was about. It says that of the people means the same people who are in government and governing you are just uh, ordinary folks. Uh, by the people means that the, the governing people have the same life experiences as the governed. Uh, if they're billionaires, they don't. And for the people means that it is the responsibility of government to take care of its citizens. Now, the strict father morality view doesn't say that. It says the opposite of that. There's a second idea. From the beginning of this country, uh, there was an idea that citizens care about other citizens, work through the government to provide uh, public resources for everybody equally, both for um, uh, private uh, life and for private enterprise, and especially business, since most people work in businesses of some sort. Uh, the assumption was, for example, in, in business, public resources were there uh, to provide roads and bridges so that people could move their goods and businesses could, could move around. Uh, they had interstate commerce laws so that there could be commerce across the states. There was a patent office for business. Uh, 90% of the justice system uh, was there for uh, uh, corporate law and business law. Um, and uh, there were other things that, that were done for business lots of things for business, as well as private life. Public education was there so that businesses would have educated employees, but also so that ordinary people would have an education and be more free and have uh, and be better citizens. Uh, so things like health, there were um, you know, certain public hospitals that were there. All of this stuff was done for private life and private enterprise at the same time. Uh, if you have um, a, a justice system uh, that is police and uh, military, etc., it protects both ordinary citizens and businesses. Uh, so you can't basically have business without all these things. But more recently, 
Government has provided science and technology. Where did computer science come from? It came from and uh, was financed by the National Science Foundation and DARPA. Uh, where did uh, the uh, satellite communication come from? NASA and NOAA. That is all government programs. Where do you get GPS systems from? The Defense Department maintains the entire satellite system that allows for GPS systems that are used in everything every day. In short, nobody, no business can function on this planet without uh, public resources provided by the U.S. government over a period of time. That's something that conservatives don't like to acknowledge. They don't like to acknowledge. They think they can do it all themselves. They, and not only that, they want to get rid of public resources. They want to privatize as much as possible. They want to privatize the national parks. Uh, the idea of uh, having an infrastructure like a new highway system, they want private highways with private toll roads. Uh, they want to privatize education. Betsy DeVos is out to get rid of public education and to privatize it. The idea is there is the opposite of what this found country was founded on. So we have some questions from people on Facebook and Twitter. And so now we'll do a little Q&A. Um, some of these are still popping up. We actually got hundreds of responses this morning when we asked for questions. So let me give you one here first from uh, from Facebook. It's from Megan Dietz. I hope I'm saying the name right. She asks, aren't we wasting our time trying to talk to conservatives? Aren't their brains actually broken at this point in time? Well, um, the answer is no, for a very interesting reason. Uh, what we've said so far is to talk about pure progressivism and pure conservatism. But that doesn't exist in most people. Think for a moment about what is a moderate. A moderate uh, progressive is someone who has some conservative views or other. A moderate conservative is someone who has some progressive views or other. Uh, what that means is that uh, if you are a moderate uh, on one side or the other, you have both moral systems, but you apply one to more cases. So you have a conservative moral system that you apply in most cases, but for in some cases you take the, the progressive moral system and the, con con the converse. Well, how is it possible to have two opposite moral systems in the same brain, you know, where you have, you know, they're both set up by, by neural circuitry. How is it possible to have these opposing neural circuitries in the same brain? And any neuroscientist will give you the right answer, which is there is a kind of circuit that's everywhere in your body and brain called mutual inhibition. The activation of one turns off the other, either way. So, um, if you, uh, and, and you can see this in your body, and this is important to understand. Uh, take your arm. You have uh, a, a flexor muscle and an extensor muscle in your arm. They are linked by mutual inhibition. As you flex your flexor muscle, your uh, extensor muscle relaxes. As you tense your extensor muscle, your flexor muscle relaxes. That's mutual inhibition in your body. Every muscle in your body has an opposite muscle linked by mutual inhibition. Every single muscle in your body, but the brain also is structured in terms of mutual inhibition because there are things that you can't do together. You know, you can't take a step with both left and right feet at the, going forward at the same time. You know, there's mutual inhibition guiding every step you take. 
And this is, you know, a, a vitally important part of, of what it is to have a, a human brain. What that means is that most people have some opposite views. And so then the question is, how do you talk to them? How do you talk to them? And this is also true of strong conservatives. People who are very, very conservative have what I'll call in-group nurturance. That is, they care about people in their in-group. That is, it could be in their church, in their military group, in their families, in their communities. Uh, and what you'll see is that that is real care. Um, and you saw this very dramatically when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston. You saw pictures of people in boats going out rescuing other people. Any other, anybody who was in trouble was rescued. Most of the people in those boats were conservatives. And what happened was that all of Houston all of a sudden became their in-group. They're out there rescuing people, you know, uh, of any sort. And it turns out that uh, if you live in conservative communities, it's not that everybody's mean to everybody else, quite the opposite. If those conservative communities uh, are seen as the in-group, then they're very nice to people when they're in-group. You get conservatives who, are, who act as if they're progressives for people in their in-group. They, they want them to, to do well. So how does a um, uh, progressive talk to first strong conservatives who have in-group nurturance, and how do they talk to moderates? For moderates, what you want to do is not move to the other side. If you're talking to a um, Republican who is a moderate Republican, you don't say, I'm going to talk to him using conservative language. It's the opposite. Talk to him using your language and your ideas because if he's partly progressive, you want to activate those progressive ideas in him. The language you use activates brains because it has meaning. And so um, if you're talking uh, to people on the right, you don't use conservative language. You use yours. Now, you can do this if you're talking at the level of in-group nurturance because what's important there is the individuals that people help. Um, the worst thing you can do talking to conservatives is to talk in terms of policies, programs, and the government. You want to talk about individuals. You want to say, uh, are there people in your church who are sick, who have diabetes, who have cancer, uh, but don't have health insurance? Uh, you know, what do they need? Uh, do they need that health insurance? Uh, are there people there uh, who are crippled in your church? Uh, you know, are there people who have lost their jobs in your church or in, you know, your community or in your family? It's that level of discourse that is crucial in talking to arch conservatives. Because, and, and uh, what, I, what I discovered when I um, uh, was teaching was that students would say to me, Christmas is coming up, we're going to have Christmas dinner with my relatives, and we always get into fights over the dinner table. You know, my, my grandfather's very conservative, I have an aunt that's very conservative, you know, and we always fight about politics over the dinner table. Thanksgiving, Christmas, it's always a battlefield at dinner. And uh, I say, look, uh, don't fight. Whatever you do, your grandfather wants to love you. Your aunt wants to love you. 
They want to be respected by you. So instead, ask them a question, the following question. What are you most proud of that you did to help someone else? Another question here from Facebook, Brett Hill asks, what can we do to get liberals to use the language you recommend? Republicans lockstep their soundbites, propaganda, while liberals seem to discover what to say every day. What you can do is what we're doing here with this podcast. We set up a citizens communication network where we give analyses of what is going on, analyses of uh, what progressives, what progressive moral systems look like, what conservative moral systems look like, uh, and um, how you can activate them. And you do it by being positive. There's a book I wrote called Don't Think of an Elephant. If what you're doing is arguing against something, uh, using their own terms. And you, you see this with pundits, liberal pundits on TV all the times. There'll be something said on Fox News and they'll take this thing said on Fox News and they'll repeat it and then they'll give the facts against it. And every time they repeat it, they're helping conservatives because that activates a conservative worldview in people's brains. Uh, that's why, you know, when Nixon said, I am not a crook, people thought of him as a crook. You know, just say, remember, don't think of an elephant. Uh, and this is uh, very important. Like, don't think of a podcast. We're thinking of a podcast. The idea here is um, persistence in the positive is much better than resistance against the negative. Because resistance against the negative has to keep the negative in your brain and in everybody else's brain at all times and negating what they're doing. And instead, the way to do it is to undermine what they're doing by being positive, by saying the things that imply the, the opposite of what they're doing without saying them, without using their words or using their terms, but rather building up a nurturant, empathetic view of the world. And this is what we're trying to do. That brings us to our next question from Jennifer Crowell on Facebook. Is there any way to redirect the conversation to empathy? I feel like that's what's missing from the conversation. That's exactly right. Empathy is the basis of progressive thought. It's the basis of, uh, you know, progressive family life. Uh, and I, uh, Obama said something very interesting in his Father's Day talk in 2008 when um, he uh, went to an African-American church in Chicago and was addressing um, uh, young men there who had fathered children but were not uh, had not married uh, their mothers and were not uh, raising them. And he said to them, you're not really men. Real men go and raise their children. And if they have spouses uh, or mothers who are raising their children and know what's going on, they respect those mothers and listen to them. But moreover, if they're raising their children, they need to come and raise and empathize with them, find out what they need, give them what they need, uh, read to them teach them, have make sure they're going to school and doing their homework and not getting into fights. But more than anything else, you have to teach them empathy, to care about other people. Because if you don't, you're going to have a generation of people who don't care about anybody else. And that's really right. Empathy is the heart of democracy. That's what this is about. Citizens caring about other citizens, having a government that is of, by, and for the people. That is, helping the people. 
That is what uh, freedom is about. It is about freedom for everybody. We're at time for today, George, but do you have any parting thoughts for people on what's a really tough day? Just last week we had a great victory defeating Roy Moore, but today we're seeing the Republicans pass this uh, terrible tax scam bill, and they're going to be celebrating this victory for the next couple of weeks. What thought would you like to leave people with? Um, the thought is that by setting up a huge deficit, a $1.5 trillion deficit, uh, they will be using the metaphor that, if, that um, a government debt is a family debt uh, and that later on uh, that if you have a large debt, you're going to have to cut spending. And what will that spending cuts be? They'll be on Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid. They'll be the worst spending cuts you can imagine. This is setting up to destroy Medicare, 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 and Social Security, and Medicaid, which are all you know public resources to help people who need them, and that we have invested in them. We've paid for those things. But the point is, they're going to try to destroy them. And you can see it coming, and in fact, they've already said they're gonna to try to destroy them. Paul Ryan said this is an opportunity that, you know, for them to destroy, destroy all these programs. Uh, they call them with a word that we should never use, entitlements, as if nobody is really entitled to anything. And entitlements are, is a terrible word for that. Namely, they're things that we earn and we deserve because we're citizens, because we're in a country uh, where we have a government that is for the people, that provides public resources, which are absolutely necessary for all of private life, and they're for everybody. That part of what democracy is and enables us to be free. Those views are against freedom. They're against making sure that everyone is free. This is a fight for freedom. The conservatives want to take the word freedom and liberty and say that that means that you are free to take advantage of anybody else you want to. But that's not the case. You may be free to walk down the street but you're not free to knock down other people and keep them from walking down the street. You're, you are only free to the extent you, that you do not impose on the freedom of others. This tax bill is imposing on the freedom of most people in the country. 99% of the people in this country are you know, not going to get the benefits of this tax bill. 83% of it, here's the, st the statistics again, 83% of the $1.5 trillion is going to the top 1%. That, where, where is it coming from? It's coming from the bottom 99%. 99% of the people in this country are paying to increase the freedom of the top 1% and giving up their freedoms. Their freedoms are being taken away from them because they're Power through wealth is going to the top 1%. Welcome to FrameLab, the podcast. I'd like to thank Jules Bernstein and uh, Jack Schoenbrunn for all the technical assistance that made this po uh, podcast possible. Uh, you can't do things by yourself. You, you all need technical assistance and all sorts of other assistance through our lives. Thank you, Jules. Thank you, Jack.